Once again, we are turning to the second letter of Paul to Timothy and chapter 4, and we're going to consider tonight verses 2 and 3 and 4. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, preach the word. I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. He's been writing to Timothy about the scriptures. He's reminded him how they originate in the breath of God coming upon and passing through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament as they were actually writing the words of the Bible. And he has gone on to say, I'm talking about the last verses of chapter 3 now, he's gone on to say that the scriptures have a wide and pervasive usefulness. Elsewhere he calls the scriptures the chosen weapon of the Holy Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So here is a book, he tells Timothy, and he's telling us, that can equip every Christian for every conceivable good work that we are to do in our future lives. What a book. What it says, the creator of the universe, your creator, says. Facing all the challenges that lie before us, Students now, graduation, a job, marriage, children, caring for them, maintaining your work in a hostile world, retirement, sickness, old age and death. Facing all of that, you're able to say, through this book, I'm able to say more than, well, I'll get by, or I shall survive. I shall be more than conqueror through him who loved me and gave me a book. So if it will be trouble or hardship or persecution or nakedness or peril or sword, the word of God is alive and powerful to overcome all those enemies and give us safety and peace. The word of God assures us that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So here is the life-changing God-breathed scripture and how precious it is. It's more precious than all the world. And so there might be a tendency then in the light of this incredible piece of literature for us to take uh, exquisite care of it and bubble wrap it and put it in a vault and put it in the middle of Fort Knox with razor wire and uh, dogs 
and armed guards protecting it. You know how occasionally uh, a farmer is deplowing a field and his, the blade of his plow uh, touches something. It's something stony. It's, it's there. He can see a shape somewhere. He sends for the archaeologists. And they have discovered the remains of a fine Roman villa. And the floor, when they uncover it, is a, a glorious mosaic of small tiles featuring uh, the sun and the moon and uh, the trees and crops and family life in all the original colors which 1,600 years have failed to fade because they've been protected by the layers of soil there. So the discovery then of this mosaic is featured on television and uh, in the newspapers. It's a breakthrough in learning more about the culture of the 3rd century Britain under Roman rule. And then you know what's done next. It's an amazing act, but quite essential, that the mosaic floor is once again buried under the soil because the exposure of sunlight to it will bleach all the colors out of the little mosaic tiles that go to make up this extraordinary floor. And once in a decade, then, the soil is taken away and uh, for a month. People are allowed to see it and marvel at it and take photographs of it. It is buried in order to preserve it. Now, I'm saying to you, we have something. It's there on the pew in front of you. Many of you have brought it with you. It's more valuable than Stonehenge. It's the Word of God. So there came a time in the history of the church when... um, it, it was exalted, and it was uh, allowed to be translated into Latin. And its translation into the language of the people was forbidden, and they were burnt at the stake and strangled if they tried to translate it and give it to the plowboy. What were they doing, these uh, heretical reformers, in translating the Bible into English? It was so exultant and mysterious and glorious a commodity, this word of God. And men died. Then many men died a horrible death because of their desire to get the scriptures, to get the word of God into the language of the people. Now, of course, we keep the earliest copies of uh, the manuscripts of scripture in vaults and in libraries under lock and key their priceless antiquities and if any uh, scholar wants to see them he has to put white gloves on and he has to treat them with enormous care that is not what we do with uh, the battered God-breathed scriptures with the sellotape binding that a lot of you have brought along tonight we don't preserve the scriptures like the crown jewels locked in some ecclesiasticals strong room. And so Paul says to Timothy in our text, I give you this charge, preach the word. Herald it. Like the old town crier would ring his bell and draw the populace around him and the beggars would come and the village idiot would come and the children out of curiosity would come and housewives and working men would all come and when they were all there and he stopped ringing the bell 
then he would declare to them the message he had from the king. That's the task of me tonight and a million men like me all over the world. Jonathan Edwards described God as a communicating being. He is here with us and uh, he is not silent. He opens his heart to us. He tells us his deepest, tenderest thoughts. All we need to know of God that will help us for every good thing that he calls us to do, he makes known to us in the scriptures. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Read the Bible to the people if they're illiterate. Teach them to read it in circulating schools. Print the Bible in their language, and a little girl then will tie her boots, her clogs, around her neck and she will walk over 30 miles with money that she has saved up in order that she might have this word herself. You'll make many mistakes in explaining it to the people. But you won't say then, oh, I'm imperfect, I'm unworthy, I dare not preach. This call is too great, the honor too glorious for a worm like me. In your felt weakness, you will preach the word to the people. I've never preached a perfect sermon. And never will. Nor will any man. You can proclaim it at times with wrong motives. You still go on preaching the word of God. Remember Paul speaks of some envious men who were there in the church in Rome, who were stirred by his absence. And so they opened their mouths, and they taught all out of rivalry to him. It was a challenge to his leadership. They were exercising now their authority, because he was in prison. Paul says they were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. All right, Philippians 1, you know those familiar words. Well, now, let's look at this passage before us. And uh, the first thing I want to say to you is uh, the word is to be proclaimed to all. It's basic. You, You know this. The word is to be proclaimed to all. Preach the word. God has taken such pains in breathing out the scriptures in order that they may be made known. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. There's the centrifugal force that goes out and out. It's reached Aberystwyth for many centuries. Hymna says, preach it to all and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. So the Lord Jesus made it spectacularly clear. You sometimes hear uh, men say, uh, uh, Jesus didn't come to preach, but he came to give us something to preach. It's It's a false dichotomy. I read to you tonight from 
Matthew's Gospel and the fourth chapter and how Jesus began to preach. And he went everywhere to individuals and to crowds of people. And he told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl needs to hear the word of God. Everyone has got his own needs because of his weakness and because of his sin and guilt. And here is the, the Savior. Here is the only begotten Son of the Father. And the only one who can meet the needs of everyone by his righteous life and by his atoning death and by his living presence at the right hand of God, by the fact that he is the God of providence, that he has decreed that I should bring this message to you tonight and that you should be hearing it in this congregation and all that. Before the beginning of time, God decreed. No one can steal from you God's providence for you. So we say, let me introduce you to Jesus. I did it this morning, I'll do it again tonight. Our secrets are for sharing. Our treasures are for giving away. None of us can bring the whole world to Christ, but we have to bring Christ to the whole world. There were no excepts in the Great Commission. Jesus didn't say, walk across the world and preach the word to all you meet uh, except dot, dot, dot. No, preach the word to all. There are no limitations. None may be accepted. God commands all men everywhere to repent. We believe that... Uh, this world can never be Christianized. It's a groaning world under the God of the power of the air that works in the spirits of the children of disobedience. We can't Christianize the world, but we can evangelize. And nothing will stop us in the increasingly alien and hostile climate in which we live. We, we know what our priorities are. You can never speak to the wrong person about Christ. You can go to a stranger, go to the criminal, go to the suicide bomber, go to the thief, go to the bored and the indifferent, go to the cruelest of tyrants, and you can say to them, I've got good news for you. I have a word of mercy from God for you. I have a message of the grace of God for you, that Jesus Christ was made sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Receive him as you repent. As you turn from your guilt and, and your shame. And put your hope and put your trust in him alone. Whatever you've done. However bad the file. Though your sins are like scarlet. They can be whiter than snow. Can you believe it? Good news of grace abounding then to the chief of sinners. There is mercy with God when you close with him that you may fear him. We deserve eternal death because we are sinners, but Jesus Christ, because he loved us, died in our place on Golgotha's cross. 
I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the word. And it must be preached to all without exception. Come to Christ. Believe upon Christ. Repent of your sin. Jesus is ready to receive you. The word of God then is... That's my first point. It's to be proclaimed to all. My second point is all Christians are to preach the word. Now, you know there's a very useful and important distinction made between the general call to every single Christian to preach the word and a special call that comes to favored men, gifted by the Holy Spirit to be full-time preachers of the word. This is their singular vocation. There's a gifted young doctor. He's in London. He's uh, working with the, the king's physician. And uh, he's got a g- glorious future set before him. But after he's done everything, and all of Bart's and St. Thomas's have done everything, these people are going to die. And he has seen another message. The Savior who says, I am the life. I have come that they might have life. And might have it more abundantly. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a message. And so he turns his back on that uh, enormously privileged and materially useful and helpful life to come to a steel town in South Wales to to preach the word to a, a, a working class congregation of miners and steel workers and the church says thank God favored gifted men forsake all else and give themselves to preaching so let me just break that down then those two points Um, all Christians are to preach you say all Christians to preach the word we find the answer of course you know what I'm referring to in Acts 8 where the first major explosion of persecution erupts against the church. And we read in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those that were the recipients of the hatred of men and women and had to flee for their lives, leave their property behind them, take their donkeys with them and run. And everywhere they went, they preached the word. They took their religion with them. Men and women, young and old. They gossiped the gospel to people. who said, oh, you, you're a long way from home. You've got a Jerusalem accent. Well, what, what are you doing here? Ah, oh, well, we met a man called Jesus Christ. And he's the son of God. We've met him. and He's changed our lives. And he's the son of God. He's the long-promised Messiah. And they went everywhere preaching the word. They were showing what Christ had done for them. What they lived by, they imparted to others. They weren't giving the gospel in Moroccan leather or in cloth covers. They were presenting the gospel in sandals. Spurgeon said that the Sermons most needed today are sermons in shoes. Every single Christian then is to preach the word in that sense that we are to give a reason for the hope that we have. Uh, uh, tomorrow morning, 
uh, you bump into people uh, having coffee and you, they'll say, oh, it's been a nice weekend. It was a lovely day yesterday. What did you do? And you know, we went to church. Oh, why? And you'll give a reason why you went to church tonight. Are you asking God to bless a lisping, stammering tongue? There's great power in such a hesitant, shy voice speaking the word of God sincerely. Uh, Do you know basic verses from Scripture now on uh, man's sin, Christ's grace? The way of salvation, you, you know those verses. You fall behind them. You say the Bible says this. Do, do you know them? I remember when we, some of us were saved in 54 and we started a Christian union in school. And there was a Jehovah's Witness who sort of emerged because he was interested to talk about religion and he knew his verses, J.W. verses. He knew them and knew his interpretation of them. And we didn't. It was a great school then to study and understand and know that Jesus Christ is God. So if, if we're going to be useful for the Lord, we've got to know the word of God. We've got to lay up his word in our hearts. Our delight, like uh, the, the psalmist at the beginning of the book of Psalms, our delight is to be in the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and to think about it night and day. So I am saying every Christian has this general call not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to speak it at every providential opportunity. Every Christian occupies some kind of pulpit and preaches some kind of gospel. And if you can't shine, you can twinkle. In this sense, preaching is the whole work of the whole church to the whole world. Listen to Charles Wesley, you know these wonderful words. My heart is full of Christ and longs its glorious matter to declare. Of him I make my loftier songs I cannot from His praise forbear. My ready tongue makes haste to sing the glories of my heavenly King. The evangelical awakening and its evangelistic thrust. And then to say also there are those who have a special call to preach. That they give their whole lives to the service of the pulpit and the proclamation of the Bible. There are those who can take certain words that Paul uses and they can say, that is my conviction too. I'm talking about Paul saying, I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I preach not the gospel. Now, not every Christian has that conviction. Not every elder, not every deacon has that conviction. Paul says, um, uh, when he's dealing with gifts in the letter to the Corinthians, he says, uh, 
do all Christians teach? And the answer is no, not all Christians teach. Others have the gift of receiving teaching and using it. And it produces fruit and usefulness in their lives. Paul has to write to the church in Corinth and he has to say to them, stay in the state in which you were in when the Lord called you. What's he mean by that? Well, you see, there was uh, a lot of yeast in the barrel in the Corinthian church. There was a lot of vitality and life. And uh, men were neglecting their wives and neglecting their homes and their children. And they were going around, uh, rambling here and there, talking to people about the faith. There was no food in the cupboards. And men were saying, oh well, darling, the Lord will provide for you. And off they were going. Well, what were other needy, poor people in the congregation to do? Were they to put their hands in their pockets and give their pennies in order to support these people in their jaunts and in their arguments? God does provide, but the way God provides for us is this. Six days shalt thou labor. That's how God provides for us. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. I'm saying to you, there is a special call. I'm speaking about men, and the unseen hands of God have come upon such men. And so preach they must, and woe to them if they do not. If they can do anything else, they probably should. So we enter the ministry when the Holy Spirit bestows upon us a gift. It comes from the head of the church. The gift makes a man a preacher. In other words, only the God who made the world can make a man a minister. He's a man under constraint. He's a man with a growing awareness of having a commission. And he can never discharge it. He can never lay it aside. He's got to all the time use it. And with his latest breath, he is saying, Behold the Lamb. So I'm saying to you all then, go on preaching, all of you. Every one of you go on preaching by your life and by your words. And I'm saying to our new pastor preacher then, Trodri Brady, in his absence, I give you this charge in a particular way, in a focused way, preach the word. The most powerful ongoing Christian witness has always been the speaking of the Word of God by someone who is living the Word of God. The third thing I want to say to you is that all God's people are to preach the Word always. Always. Okay? 24-7. Timothy is told, be prepared. We know the authorized version, be instant. Be ready for it. Be prepared. The Boy Scouts' motto, BP, Baden-Powell, be prepared, he says. So, um, you understand the context in which he is saying, but you be prepared, verses 3 and 4. Look at them. Look at these verses. The time will come. This is the context. The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. Well, now such a time had come in Ephesus, hadn't it? Such a time had come to Asia Minor, to today's Turkey, hadn't it? We've seen this in the three chapters that have preceded this chapter. At the beginning, the apostle went there. There was just one church, one congregation, teaching apostolic doctrine, and knowing the blessing of the Spirit of God in saving and building it up. He who hears you hears me. And then a time came when they, it was rather, rather monotonous, rather samey. They'd heard it all before. And uh, they became restless and hostile to Paul. All the Asia Minor churches, he is told, Timothy, all of them turned against Paul. And Timothy was the exception. Timothy was the odd man out, and he was made to feel it. He was challenged that it was his pride that made him feel different. That's why. Come on now. Don't be awkward. They had itching ears to be confirmed in their own fancies by what they believed to be the real Christianity. So, what did they do? Well, they looked for men who thought as they thought and taught what they taught, didn't they? There were many such. That's what it says, doesn't it, in this verse I've just read you. There were many such. Many, many. A great, big, ecumenical movement of undiscerning religious people. You notice these bleak words, verse 3, they will gather around them. Come on, come on, they will say... Come and preach for us next week. You believe what we believe. Come. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. That's what. But when they heard the truth, when they heard the plain words of Jesus and his apostles, when Timothy was coming to town, oh, they didn't want to hear him. They didn't like the fact that some people had invited Timothy to preach to them. And their reaction was, verse 4, they turned their ears away from the truth and turned aside to myths. You know, there's plenty of that. Urban myths today and evangelical myths. And you know them, don't you? They didn't want the truth. Sometimes you hear people say, oh, people around us today, they are hungry for the truth, you know. We don't find it. Only favored individuals are hungry for the truth. What we have observed is a church can lose its taste for spiritual meat and it gains a taste for things that are more flattering and more palatable. So they were days of great opposition to the preaching. That's what He's exhorting Timothy here to remember and not to neglect preaching the word. Severe pressure was being brought to bear on him. As today, 
well, all the time we are hearing of uh, people who work in registries and, uh, and nurses and, and doctors and school teachers who are being warned or are being sacked because they have spoken about the Lord Jesus Christ. They've offered to pray with someone. They, they say they, they can't believe that uh, two men living together, that that is a marriage. They've said that. And they've had to pay the price for it. So we're under pressure. Timothy was under pressure. So back off. Be very quiet. doesn't say that. Preach the word, he says. And be prepared in season and out of season. Well, most of us are prepared some of the time when we've heard a stirring message, when we've been to a conference and 3,000 people are there, when we've done a course on witnessing. We're on a high because of this and uh, we're ready to respond to an unexpected encounter. We can exploit the situation. There are different seasons, he says. Different seasons. There are warm preaching seasons. And there are cold preaching seasons. But the apostle says, you've got to be ready. You've got to be prepared in season and out of season. It may be that a stranger will say to you, so tell me, what do you believe full frontal and, and you aren't prepared you don't do enough of it and so you stumble and you think for days and weeks and years afterwards what you should have said in that wasted opportunity are you always prepared it may be some skeptic in a tutorial group and he blurts out no, no one believes the Bible these days and, and you've got a word to say. Are you prepared to speak up? It may be that Timothy was in a local gathering of, of churches, uh, a presbytery. Or, and uh, it was now all in the hands of an anti-Paul segment. And they were running down and rubbishing Pauline teaching. And the Pauline view of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You prepared to speak, Timothy? Can you get up, young man? And all these hoary grey hairs around you, are you going to speak? Are you going to be in your heart saying, Holy Spirit, help me now. Help me, I'm not ashamed. I'm nervous. It might have been that there was some local Roman official. And he sent for Timothy and he sent for the leaders of the church. What, what's your faith then? What's this about eating the body and drinking the blood? What, what, what is all this about? And, and they have to be ready. Be ready. Be prepared. That's what Paul is telling him here. An opportunity for a word may spring up in a moment. It may arise out of nothing. Well, are you walking with God? Are you in communion with the living God? Are you ready then to, to share that word with men and women? To be an effective witness, an effective preacher, in season and out of season. 
Now let me move on to my fourth point. What is involved for God's people in preaching? Well, there is more involved, isn't it, than bellowing out with leather lungs, Christ died for our sins. Preaching in sermons or in personal witnessing is more than throwing out, chucking pre-arranged clumps of texts at gawping, unbelieving heads. (laughs) It's more than that, isn't it? So, Paul here tells us about preaching. In verse 22, what, what is involved in it? Five things are involved in it. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That's preaching. All right. Firstly then, correcting people is involved in preaching the word. There are novices in the congregation. They've come into the kingdom of God and they brought baggage from uh, their past influences and the people that spoke to them in the past and they're muddled. They're new Christians. You think of the ministry of Christ to these um, these disciples, these 12 men. They've been working in a tax office, so they've been fishermen. They've been politically active. And he gathers them, and he has three years then to explain to them the kingdom of God. He has to correct their misconceptions about the messianic rule. And that the Messiah has to die. He has to die on the cross and rise from the dead. He has to repeat it and repeat it the third day and the third day and the third day, he tells them. And still, on the hill of ascension, they are unbelieving. They they were slow of heart and foolish in not believing all he had told them. And he corrects them. They go into a Samaritan village and instead of being welcomed and they bring out water to wash them and oil to anoint their faces and some creature comforts, they throw them out of the village and set their dogs on them. And they turn to Jesus and they say, let's nuke the village. Do what Elijah did and call fire down from heaven on this village. And Jesus is telling them about overcoming evil with good and about turning the other cheek. And forgiving is to tell them they brought a lot of baggage with them that needs to be discarded. He has to correct them. You, you were corrected, weren't you? And you were so glad about being corrected. When, for example, you thought that being justified meant being made righteous. And you can't forget the day when it was explained to you by an old preacher with his Bible as he taught and showed you that it means being declared righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not a change in the fabric of our being, of our hearts and minds, but of our status. That we are justified that Jesus Christ of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and and redemption. That you have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are justified in Christ. And you remember what 
an enormous second blessing that was to you. As you saw that truth. That I am righteous in Christ. As it was with Bunyan. My righteousness is in heaven. It's the righteousness of my Savior. And then you sang with new understanding. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. My beauty are my spotless dress. And you thank God for that man who then just spoke to you at that time and corrected your wrong view of what justification was. You were muddled. And you've always wanted to sit under ministry you can trust. Ministry that can correct you of the errors that you've picked up on your pilgrimage. Secondly, rebuking people is involved in preaching the word. All right, that's the next phrase. You see it there? Correcting. Rebuking is the next one. You go back four verses to 2 Timothy 3.16 and you see what the uses are of God-given scripture. And one of them is rebuking. It's the same word. Within four verses of one another, he repeats rebuking. Did the Lord Jesus rebuke Simon Peter? When he told him it was far from Jesus to think about going to the cross and shedding his blood there as the Lamb of God, did Jesus say to him, Get thee behind me, Satan? What a rebuke. That gentle Jesus, meek and mild, gave to Peter. Did he rebuke the Pharisees? Did he call them names? Did he say they were whitewashed sepulchres and a den of snakes? Did Paul rebuke the Galatian church? Uh, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and you are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. He didn't say, what a bewildering, wonderful variety of different Christian opinions there are in this great religious movement of ours. He didn't say that. He was alarmed. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Now, he was very patient with the muddles in Corinth. There were Gentiles and Jews in the congregation there, and... uh, The Jews, back 20 generations, had always kept Saturday as a special day of rest. And now they were adding, then, the first day of the week with the Gentiles. And they were restless that the Gentiles were working on Saturdays. And Paul is very patient and leans over backwards to keep the two groups together. He mustn't. It's almost going to split The church, he's patient with them because no gospel centrality is being affected. It's a leaf and twig doctrine, not a a trunk and branch doctrine about what you do on a Saturday. But in Galatia, when the Galatian Judaizers are saying, look, you want to live now a life that God is really pleased with. Do you want to enter into such blessedness? And their eyes glowed. Let me tell you what it meant to me when I got circumcised 
Jesus was not enough. It was another gospel, which is not a gospel. And Paul rebuked them in that extraordinary letter. Now, I'm sure when I was young and a hothead, I rebuked when I should have been more charitable. But the presence of past immaturity that we have all showed does not stop us from rebuking serious error when it's starting to show in an area, in a congregation, in the church of God's grace. The third thing, encouraging people, is involved in preaching the word. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Did Jesus encourage the people? Did he uh, tell them, you are the light of the world? What? Men of 20 years of age are being told that they are the light of the world. Did he say that he no longer called them his servants, but he called them his friends? Did he quickly restore fallen Peter? And did he say to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs? Did he recommission him? Did Paul go out of his way to encourage churches? Did he, in all the letters except the letter to the Galatians, did he tell the church how he thanked God for them? Whenever I think of you, I thank God for you. I'm thanking God for you all the time. I always have you in my heart, and I pray to God for you on every occasion, and I pray that uh, God will continue to bless you, your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope, that from you the word of God has gone out right through your whole area, and they all know about you. I think of the love you have for all the saints. Are we doing that? Are we, are we like the Apostle Paul? Are we saying, thank you, thank you. Thank you for all the work you do with the young people on the, on the Friday. Thank you for teaching in the Sunday school on, after the morning service. Thank you. Thank you for all your work in the, in the Christian Union at the university. And we thank God. We make people feel good. That their witness is worthwhile. So true preaching, we are told, contains a ministry of encouragement. Then there's a fourth thing. Careful instruction is involved in preaching the word. Careful, it's no good that a minister is a nice guy. That's no good, is it? Friendly and approachable. If he is failing to carefully instruct the people. It's not easy to go through the letter of to the Romans week by week and feed the, the, the giants in the congregation and uh, feed the little people without them being bored by it. In our efforts to be liked, we want to be liked by young and old. Who doesn't want to be liked? You dare not avoid what Paul calls here careful instruction that the preacher is characterized by carefully instructing the flock you will hear a wise Christian and he will say oh I love my minister because he takes such care with the Bible when he instructs the congregation I think it was Luther who said that the gospel in most part can be found in prepositions 
Let me explain that to you. Um, you think of two prepositions now. We are saved by good works. We are saved to good works. All right? Two little prepositions, two letters. And you're going to say, well, <laughs> you know, there's no difference between those two. The difference is between heaven and hell. We're saved by the good works of Jesus Christ, by his righteous love, by his atoning death. That saves us. And if we are saved by it, we are saved to a life of good works, of serving others, of caring for others, of going the second mile, of turning the other cheek, of overcoming evil with good. Just two prepositions. By, by good works. Uh-uh. Two, four, unto good works. That's it. Or think of the difference between being saved through your faith and being saved because of faith. We are saved because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his life. And because of his death and his resurrection, and his session at God's right hand. That saves us. We are saved because of Jesus Christ. We're not saved because of our faith. We're saved through our faith. Our faith looks to him. Our faith holds on to him and grabs him. My faith didn't die for me. My faith didn't rise from the dead for me. My faith doesn't pray at the right hand of God for me. That's Jesus Christ. I'm saved by him. But he is mine and I am his by my entrusting myself, all that I have, to him forever. So carefully instruct the people. And the last thing he says, one thing more. You've been very patient. And patience is needed because we're told you great patience is involved in preaching the word. He's focusing, obviously, on long-term uh, pastorates here, full-time pastorates, not itinerant preachers. He thinks of Timothy as the, as the pastor there at Ephesus and the people who attended year after year, but never seemed to grow. They've been listening to Timothy for years, and they still haven't grasped the heart of the gospel. And Timothy needs to be patient with him. Great patience. That's, you see the adjective. Great patience. We all have a bit of patience, but great patience is needed. To handle frustrations and seemingly unanswered prayer, you need great patience. So there are many shortcuts these days to preachers, aren't there? All sorts of conferences and books uh, that can bring renewal and that can bring church growth. But the greatest gift a preacher can have is patience. Delays are better than disasters. The life of a pastor, the life of a pastorate is like a symphony. And in every symphony there's a slow movement. And sometimes churches go through slow movements. Be patient. We don't believe in ministerial dress but we do believe in the livery of holy 
patience. It, oh, that it was the sweet vesture that every one of us wore, that we were a congregation. And they said, people who worship in this church, they, they are very patient people. They've been very patient. Patience is rooted in, well, God's in control, isn't he? God, God took her from me. God ordained that illness to come into her life. God determined that we shouldn't have children. We go back to the first cause. Hudson Taylor always says we, we just submit to him. You know, you pray, oh Lord, make me more patient. And so God brings a trial into your life. And you're looking after someone week after week, month after month, year after year. You are repeating mundane duties and exhorting with mundane repetitive tasks. And sometimes you get frustrated and you ask God for help. And God says, well, haven't you prayed for patience? Aren't I answering your prayer for patience? Our troubles will be shortened if our patience can be lengthened. How patient God is towards us, isn't he? What twerps we can be as Christians. Thomas Watson says patience makes a Christian invincible. Patience makes a Christian invincible. Patience makes a Christian preacher very useful. And that is how the word of God is to be preached. I charge you, preach the word. Lord, bless your word to us now, we pray. Thank you for the patience given to the people here to listen to this exposition of the word of God. Holy Spirit, take the word. Apply it to the hearts and minds, the thinking, the judgments of all that are here. And we pray that some may learn tonight the difference between saved because of good works and being saved unto good works. Teach the children that, that they may not think of themselves as boys and girls who merit anything from thee, but boys and girls who owe everything that they are and have to a loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear our prayers, which we bring in Jesus' name. Amen.